please stand for the reading of the word. This is from Genesis 6, 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning on this snowy morning. My kids are probably hoping that they'll get to play in it later. Uh, we are continuing through the book of Genesis, and if this is one of your first times here, you're probably wondering, like, well, how in the world can I possibly get more involved with grace and peace? The initial way to get involved with grace and peace is uh, coming to Sunday worship. That is great. Awesome. Yes, you're here. Next is to be involved in a city group. That is a place where you can go deeper, connect with God, but also you can care for others. You can actually live life on mission with other people. And then next, we would uh, start to work on something called cohort groups, which could be you could focus on marriage. You could end up focusing on uh, things such as uh, men's and women's studies, or you could focus on like biblical theology, different things like that. And that will be offered throughout the year. Those are ways that you can get more involved with grace and peace and grow deeper in your relationship with the Lord. But we get to this time here in the Bible where we start talking about Noah, that weird figure who knows what to do with him, and we start talking about judgment, you know, and, uh, you know, judgment in a God who judges is pretty passe nowadays, isn't it? You know, nobody really likes that. Every, you, you look on the newspaper, you look on your social media, people aren't really cool with a God who judges. It makes them really uncomfortable, this, this idea of a God who judges. I mean, we don't need threats anymore from a God to tell us what it means to be good. We could just live a relatively good life. As long as you don't murder anybody, you're generally okay. Uh, in, in our day and age, we don't find that belief in God difficult. 
You know, we can believe in God. As long as you believe in God, you'll be okay. But belief in a God that judges people and who will actually punish sin, well, well that's a little harsh, isn't it? Come on. Yeah, our world is, is uh, happy with a God that generally affirms people. I would say that this is a kind of a Stepford God, though, right? We make this God into our, to what we want. You remember the old Stepford Wives movie? If you don't, go look it up. It's basically a bunch of guys decided to create a bunch of robots for their wives who did exactly what they wanted. But we do the same thing with God in our generation, don't we? We like Stepford gods, but when the real God decides to make judgments, look out. We don't really, that makes us uncomfortable. It is easy to follow a God of your own making, but a God that is actually independent of you, one that judges not just my enemies, but judges me, that's, that's pretty frightening, isn't it? But what if that is the God that actually exists? You know, a God that doesn't, maybe he doesn't have passions like a human, like me, but one that nonetheless the Bible communicates to humanity as one that judges, one that loves, one that feels sorry, one that can hate, one that grieves, one that can be gracious, one that sacrifices. You see, the modern view is probably uh, is best formulated by a sociologist, Christian Smith, where he says the modern view of God is one that is moralistic, therapeutic, and they're deistic. So moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so in interviewing thousands of young people who are your millennials today, between 2003 and 2005, he found particular trends in belief amongst this group. And here's what he found. He explains this amorphous faith is about belief in a particular kind of God. One who exists, yes, created the world, defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved with one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. In short, God is something like a combination of a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. See, the problem with that is that God's just a consultant and not a Lord. So they view, this, this, temporary, this contemporary view views that God exists who created the order and, and ordered the world and watches over all human life. This God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. And this God, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. And that's what most people believe. But do you know that most societies in the world did not believe that. It is only with our myopic, our time now, that we would only say, like, oh, obviously that's the God exists. But if you grew up in maybe sub-Saharan Africa, like a hundred years ago, no, you would believe and you would want a God that actually is just and actually executes justice. 
And if you're a person, maybe that you have lived through injustice or you've been unjustly treated, we think about uh, civil rights movements. No, what was the power behind that? It was a just God that was actually going to vindicate the people who were oppressed. They believed in a just God and that he would free people. That's what they were looking for. So most societies believed in the God of justice and that was involved. In essence, what we have done is we've made a God of our own image instead of realizing that we are made in his. Instead of him judging us, we judge him. We have made God comfortable, palatable, and even tame. And I need to critique myself as well. I like the cute, cuddly God. One who can be there whenever I'm feeling sad and is just fluffy enough to keep me warm at night. That soothes me. But when I look at this God, it ought to rightly frighten me. And it was to warn the people, do not continue down this road, but repent, change your ways. We'll see a God who's patient, who's merciful, but yet who does condemn sin, who yet is just, but yet at the same time is gracious and saves. And not because of our effort. You see, if you don't see the seriousness of your sin, of, of sin, and your own sin, then you'll never be able to see the amazing grace of God. If you realize that you can't white knuckle, clean yourself up, or distract distract others from your sin, you, you need to realize you need a savior. And once you realize that you can't do those things, you can't white-knuckle it, you can't make yourself look good enough, feel good enough, then, then you're really close. So today I ask you to ask this of yourself. Do I believe in a God as a judge? And if you do, ask yourself, but what am I functionally using as my defense? And if you don't, if in the end you need to ask yourself this, why do I always act like as if there is a judge? You know, so judgment can be considered faux pas today, but we can't live with it, and we can't live without judgment. We can't live with calling things wrong, bad, evil, nor can we uh, live without trying to strive for this approval in our life so that we would have right standing. So think about it this way. When you get on Instagram and TikTok today, and when you see the little heart buttons, people like me, they have made a judgment on my life that I'm approved, that I'm worthwhile. You see, deep down, we can't live with negative judgments about ourselves, can we? And so we go and we seek out positive judgments or Go on Twitter, and you will inevitably find someone who is going to be uh, condemning somebody, passing judgment on somebody for what they said. You will even find people judging people for judging people. It's amazing. You see, we can't live this way. We will always pass judgments on everybody else, even in 140 characters. 
See, to get to the heart of the gospel, we need to begin in, in the beginning of the story. Noah shows us that in our world, we can't live with judgment, nor can we live without it. But as the old Russian novelist and philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through the center of every human heart. See, we need a world where there is judgment for evil. And we also need a world where we can get the positive, positive verdict for our life. We're all hamming for approval, and we're all wanting people to be condemned. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. And so, today, we're going to look at God's gracious, gracious judgment. And so we look at judgment, the judge, and the judged. In chapter 5, we see a narrator, the narrator, to detail the line of the seed of the woman, the people of God. And you look through it, and you'll probably wonder, hey, wait a second, how come there's people living like 960 years? Okay, so, first off, I want you to know that this is not uncommon. If you were to look at Sumerian king lists of people who would have lived relatively the same size, the Sumerian king list is actually twice as long that the, their kings were living twice as long as, like, Methuselah, which is incredible, So, which makes you think one thing. Either they actually lived a really long time or something else is going on. And what a lot of people have found out is that these records indicate that they may have lived regular-length lives, but the author, the narrator, is indicating that the years are not random but correspond to lengths of astrological travel. Yes, I know that sounds weird. So here's what the Bible is trying to say. The longer the person lived, the longer, the, the, uh, the, uh, the more approval this person had. That this person lived a good life. That they were a wonderful person. But now you notice that the lives were decreasing at this point, and decreased to a particular point that there was only 120. So there's a couple of things going on. How is God going to keep this line of the woman going in order to redeem this line? And then in chapter 6, something really weird is happening. We've got people like the sons of, uh, the daughters of man and the, the, sons, of, uh, the sons of God uh, intermarrying. And then they talk about Nephilim, which are like giants. And, you know, a lot of people today, they're like, giants couldn't possibly exist. But if you watch an NFL game or an NBA game, I'm like, giants exist, yo. Boom. And so, and mostly because I'm a five foot eight person that's 160 pounds soaking wet. So that's how I know that giants exist. So I, I don't have much of a problem with that. But it goes on to say, and the narrator is saying that the world is getting continually worse. And he says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart, talking about humanity, was evil continually. Not just bad, not just like sometimes messed up, but it says evil, evil. You know, so how will God cleanse his earth and yet preserve his people through this gracious judgment. So let's look at the judgment. So what is the verdict? What is the verdict on the evil intentions of the, human, of, of the heart of humanity? The narrator says in the chapter that the Lord was sorry. 
and it grieved him. And he says, this is the judgment, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry I made them. And then notice this, the narrator doesn't just say it was corrupt. He says it was corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. He says it three times. And so if you have to say it to your child three times how messed up it is, you know that it is messed up. Okay, And so when I tell my kids that it's bad for you, bad for you, bad for you, you would instinctively know, hopefully if you were my child, that, oh, I think that's bad for me. And so if the author is saying that this earth was corrupt, 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 and corrupted by the violence of humanity, the works of our hearts, how we treated each other, and if the Bible's saying it, maybe we should say, hey, uh, I actually think it was pretty messed up. Because I think at times we look at the Bible and we're like, man, God's going to go wipe out people. That's terrible of God. It just said that these people were terrible. Now suddenly you're saying God is terrible? What is going on? And so in verses 11, the narrator tells us that it was corrupt. The earth was filled by violence. And we ought to say that we aren't any better. I mean, look at the wars. Look at the way we treat immigrants. Look at the bullying online. We're not any better. Look at the way we always defend ourselves. Look at the, all the other times whenever we have anything kind of like terrible or like sinful in your heart. Well, I'll just talk about myself. Whenever I notice that there is something really bad about myself, do you know what I like to do? I like to defend myself. And suddenly, my judgments on myself aren't nearly as bad as they actually are. Oh, well, honey, if you would have, like, cleaned the house, I would not have been a slob. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I can see my wife going, like, what is wrong with you? And so, so I understand every time, whenever I say that, whenever I defend myself, and you know that you have an inner defense lawyer that rises up every time they, someone says, uh, have you ever considered that you're doing wrong here? <laughs> have you considered you're a jerk? And so you decide to call names. That's the way we do it, right? Jeremiah 17, 9, though, says, and this is after the flood, it says this in the human heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? Even further, Romans, 9, or Romans 3, 9 through 19 says this. What then? Are we Jews better off? So saying that you have you know, ethnic superiority. He's like, uh, no, uh, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And so Paul continues to write and he quotes his Old Testament scripture. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there there is no fear of God before their eyes and so suddenly Paul goes on a rap tirade of of here of old testament verses of how messed up the heart is and he leaves everybody covered in this many of us though we don't really believe we deserve punishment do we 
I'm not that bad, we say. We think that our sins aren't that big. Not big enough to merit real punishment. The funny thing is, is that we have all been doing this since we were kids. We don't think we deserve punishment. We like to give all the reasons and circumstances that it really isn't our fault. And in doing so, we deny God as judge by becoming our own judge. We deny that we're guilty. I'm telling you now, and I'm telling myself this now, that denying your guilt, denying your sin, is the surest way to put yourself into the unending slavery of performance. It is to deny the hope of ever being saved. We need to be careful when we cook the books in our favor. When we become our own judges, then we deny the right of God to judge our lives. Because what is the judgment? Our hearts are turned in on themselves. We need help. We need rescue. We need to be needy. We have need. You see, a lot of this looks like, if we were to kind of reverse judgment on God, is like a child telling their parents how to discipline the parent. And parent, you see the funny reversal here? If my kids start telling me how to parent, they're like, you know, you should really not punish me because uh, of uh, X, Y, and Z. You would, tell, you would tell me, like, Vince, you're a terrible parent. Will you please execute, this, execute the judgment here? But all of a sudden, we're okay with us telling God how to, how to be God. You and I are underqualified to tell God how to be God. And so Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian, writes of this, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign that I have no understanding of the gospel. We need to confess our sin. Auburn Sandburn in 1992, found herself in withdrawal from the drug she had been addicted to and that she was taking. She was curled up in fetal position. Her body was bruised and emaciated. It smelled awful in that room. Her husband is out looking for drugs, and she's clutching a piece of paper. She just wants to leave and get out of the house and run away, but her baby boy is sleeping in the same room behind her. What is her way out of this addiction? And as she's clutching this piece of paper, it was from her mother that some friends had somehow managed to get to her. She opens it up and it has the number of a Christian counselor. She dials it. And she says, I don't don't know why I'm calling you, but will you just listen? Will you just listen? And you could hear him uh, wrangling through his sheets and getting up. And he says, okay, go ahead. And she starts to tell him everything that she's been doing. She starts to tell him about the abuse that she feels. She starts to tell him about everything that she has done. Everything she's rejected. Everything that she's rebelled in. And this person just listens. And she starts to tell him, you know, I am a... You, you must be really good. How long have you been a Christian counselor? And he gets on the phone. He's like, uh, don't hang up. Uh, you called the wrong number. You called the wrong number. But here's the deal. 
She didn't hang up. She never reconnected with this person. But she says this about her experience about confessing. She says there was love in this world. She realized that there was love in this world. And it was unconditional. And that it was for me. All because one person did the very thing that God would do. Be interruptible. Be willing to listen. And offer love and a tender ear and care. And that was her way out. Admitting that she had need. Confessing. And a lot of us, we need to agree with God and learn how to confess. You see, but then there's also other judgments. There's this judgment of, on Noah that he was righteous and blameless with regard to the people that he was in. Noah found favor. It does not say that he earned favor. But we see Noah in the face of what seems ridiculous. God said, I'm going to blot this out. Then I want you to make this giant boat with no rudder, no navigation. Let me take care of it. And I want you to go there in front of everybody and build this ridiculously sized huge boat in the middle of the desert. Trust me. I'm going to bring the rain. And Noah starts building and he does everything. He is faithful. Uh, lest you think that somehow in the future here I'm going to tell you to be like Noah. I am not telling you to be like Noah. There's going to be a trick in the future. Uh, should we be faithful like Noah? Yes. We should trust God in the midst of it. And through faith... That's how we get the declaration of being righteous. But it's not our righteousness. We do not earn it. And so, the judgment, now the judge. And the judge here is God himself. But in our day and age, we could think that like, God has judgment, or the self has judgment. Like, you know, I'm the judge. Or we could have the judge of public opinion. But here's the thing, with the self and public opinion, we're replacing God with idolatry. We are not good enough to be our own judges. What we see is that there is a one judge, and he's the one who's just and he makes determinations. He can't be doubted. He's the one who created the world. And if you created the world, and you created the standards for everything, and the ethics of how things ought to run, and you say good or bad, and for someone else to say, no, what you're saying is really not good or bad, you're just messing it up, do you know what you're saying to the creator of all that you know better than him? But look at this. Do you trust in a God that is better, a better judge of right and wrong than you? Do you trust in your Instagram rather than the judgments of God? Do you trust in the likes of your Twitter feed or the retweets? Do you trust in the favor that you have of your parents? The favor you have of your friends? The favor you have of your boss over the judgments of God? They're unqualified to be the judge. And they can't possibly give you the lasting judgment your heart needs. But notice this. Even in the midst, it does not say that God looked down on humanity 
and in WWE style, started spitting mad and wanted to pile drive creation into nothingness, it says rather that he was grieved. You have a judge that is sad about the things that would destroy you. You have a judge that hurts and even sheds tears because of the things that will destroy you. And so he determines to make an end to it. He is going to do away with the seed of the serpent, the selfishness, the inward facing of everything. He's grieved. He judges based on the evidence. But he isn't wanting to bring the pain. It says that God is patient, that he waited. In 1 Peter 3, 19, it says this, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, talking about Jesus, because they formerly did not obey. People who were turned in on themselves. They did not formerly obey. Uses this as an expression. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. It took a long time to build that giant boat. There were plenty of opportunities to turn away from self and to turn to God. He waited patiently. And so he chooses Noah, whose name means relief. Relief from the selfishness. Relief from the inward-facing self. Noah had to trust God that he would come and he would judge. And God entrusted himself to Noah that Noah would be faithful and that his family, this seed, would be saved because of the faithfulness of Noah. That they would be saved from terrible judgment. So you need to realize this. Your judgments aren't the judgments of God. So do you know what you need to do? Watch out who you're excluding and why you're excluding them. Look at how you scold your children at times. What are you scolding them for? Is it your judgments or is it God's judgments? Who do you hate? Why do you hate them? Why do you exclude them? Is it your judgments or is it God's judgments? Watch the judgments that you reserve for yourself. Do you know God is patient with you? But at night, that little judge comes, speaks from your pillow, and you're like, what the heck are you doing over there? And tells you you're worthless, you're terrible. You're awful. You're not enough. Is that the judgment that God has for you? But then let's also look at the judged. Amongst those, amongst those that are judged, we also have the condemned and the commended. So if you notice this, both parties are judged. All people are judged. Either you will be judged and given the favorable verdict as the one who is commended, like the people who were under Noah, or you'll be condemned. And we are all condemning ourselves. You see, condemnation... And sin is like an addict. 
It's like an addict who needs more of it. If we are selfish, what we do, and, and we realize that, you know, you know what we end up doing? So, so you see your sin, you're like, I'm a sinner. Do you know what our, our inclination is? To save ourselves. I need to get my life together. I need to pick myself up from my bootstraps. I need to start doing better in order that God may approve of me. That's what we say, and that's what we do. I need, man, I need to get, I need to go to church. Why? Because God will approve of you? You've got it backwards. That isn't Christianity. You see, sin creates addicts for, makes us into addicts. All intentions were evil, it says. The condemned are addicts of self. They are the ones who are locked in hell while holding the key. It means that even the good that we do is a denial of God. It is a denial saying that we need help. It is the reckless self-sufficiency that cuts us off from the saving power of God. Whenever we try to cover our guilt with our performance, either by good works, good looks, high-functioning kids that get into college and actually never fail out, you know, or don't have student loans... We are just self-powered by our own will, and it is denying God. And so you cover your sin by more sin. You've just become an addict to yourself. At the core of sin is self. Leslie Jameson, writing on recovery from addiction and reliance on self, she says this, Addiction is always a story that has already been told because it inevitably repeats itself. Because it grinds down, ultimately for everyone, to the same demolished and reductive and recycled core. Desire, use, repeat. The big book of AA was initially called The Way Out. Out of what? Not just drinking, but the claustrophobic crawl space of the self. Coming to the end of oneself is the way out of disordered freedom. I need someone else to give me a will that is actually free. Or as St. Augustine says, to desire the aid of grace is the beginning of grace. You see, everybody at that time had a boat. Everybody had a boat. It's either the boat of God's faithfulness or the boat of self-effort. Which boat are you going to trust? God's boat, or the boat, the little tiny dinghy that you can make for yourself? Because that ain't going to work. And I'm pleading with you now to deny the self and turn to Jesus. But there's the commended He found favor. He did not earn favor. He was declared righteous. He didn't earn righteousness. It says that he was blameless because he trusts in the Lord and his word, even though it made no sense to build a giant boat in the desert. And here's the deal. You're not Noah. The goal of the story was not to tell you, you need to be like Noah. Yes, you should trust the Lord. No, You should not try to be Noah. Hebrews 11.7 says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. His righteousness extended and is transferred to cover his household. 
By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but be made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. We're all being judged. How are you going to make it through this judgment and be found righteous? Not by being like Noah necessarily, but being more like his family. They had to trust Noah that he had it together. And Noah works as a type of Christ. As a type of Christ. You see, some trusted in Noah and got in the boat. And his faithfulness, Noah's faithfulness, was transferred to them. You see, the cross is where the judge takes the judgment. That's what Tim Keller says. The gospel turns God from the judge into your defense attorney by becoming the defendant because the righteous judgment of God comes down on the one who should be condemned or comes down on the one who should be commended. We who should be condemned get his commendation. You see, the waters of judgment came down onto the ark. And the only way to be covered from the waters of judgment was not to preserve by self, but to trust in the one who was faithful. Jesus is the one who was faithful for us. And he followed and he was righteous. Jesus was the one. And if you trust in him then you'll make it through judgment and you'll have the judgment that really matters. My father was in the military and one of my favorite pictures of him is he's getting pinned with a commendation medal. You know, he's being commended for his work. And in a weird way, every time I hold that medal or I look at it, because it is now mine, I also realized that there was one who was commended for his faithfulness, but it was not me. Jesus is the one who was commended for his faithfulness and his righteousness and all his commendations are now pinned on his people. In the book Through the Valley of the River Kwai, there's a story about a World War II unit that had been taken captive. At the end of the day, they put all their shovels together and I'm counting it, one of the guard beco- guards becomes irate and just loses it. He starts beating some of the soldiers. Because one shovel is missing, and so he declares, all die. All die. But one soldier steps out, and he says, I took the shovel. And all the judgment of that guard fell down on that one person. In the end, they recounted the shovels, found out that the guard had miscounted. They were all there. But this entire unit was spared because one person took the judgment. You see, in Jesus Christ, 
And on the cross, we see the one who took all of your judgment, all of your punishment, in order that you may be spared and you may have life. And it's all yours. We are saved through judgment. And either you bear that judgment or God bears that judgment in himself. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, I pray that we would see your faithfulness, see your goodness, and be transformed by it. And as we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, may we realize your goodness and your kindness and your mercy, that you have taken judgment for us, and that the judgment on our lives is not condemned, but commended. It is not violent and corrupt, but the judgment on our lives is righteous because of Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us now approach you in your table in faith so that we may be transformed by your goodness and your love and your mercy by the power of your spirit now. Help us, Lord, convict us of sin. Help us to confess actual real sin. Help us not to deny it anymore, but call it what it is. Help us, Lord, to rest on your righteousness and your judgments in Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let us now proclaim our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This table here is not a table of just grace and peace. It is not a table of the Presbyterian Church in America, but this is the table of the Lord for those who make the confession that you just made, who for, throughout the ages have confessed with one voice, the truth about Jesus Christ. And if you believe with so many others that Jesus Christ was the one who was condemned on your behalf so that you may have his righteousness and that you may be commended, then this meal is for you. But if you have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you observe, ask questions. I understand what it's like to have deep resonating questions and things that keep you from this. I understand. Ask me questions afterward. We don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you are in your spiritual journey. At Grace and Peace, we come forward for the Lord's Supper. You'll get bread, and it's offered to you. You take and you eat it. And then there is drink. 
There is uh, wine in the center rings and juice on the outer rings, and there's gluten-free bread on the table. But this is a meal in faith, so let us uh, proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this meal. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. On the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took the bread. He broke it. Gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. Which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper was ended, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his death on our behalf until he comes again. He was the one condemned for you so that you would be commended. You are invited to take and eat of true spiritual food. This bread, this cup, let us pray. Lord, let us remember your mercy and goodness in the person of Jesus Christ, that you have not treated us according to our sins, but treated us according to faith in Jesus Christ, that his broken body is our broken body. And his poured out blood is our poured out blood. Lord, I pray that we would have life in Jesus and that we would celebrate it now because your mercy is tender and caring and patient and loving and you wait for us to turn back to you. Let us turn now to you and be transformed by your grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen.